You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 2, Gone Boys. He went missing on the highway. It was the last time I seen him. There is a certain type of offender who relies on the highway patrol for strangers or what we call targeted strangers. What about the men? What is going on in the valley? There's always those people that play the predators of the world. They're, they're everywhere. It's impossible for me to think of him suffering, you know, at the hands of someone else. We all need closure. That closure will never come until we find those loved ones. Why isn't anyone talking about the missing men? Where have they gone? I begin hearing questions about the missing men soon after moving to Vancouver Island. Brandon, Ian, Desmond, Daniel, Everett, Kelly. Beautiful names. Names once lovingly given to baby boys by their parents. These boys are all just gone. And as I begin to look into their disappearances, a memory comes flooding back to me. It's the 1990s. I'm just starting out in my journalism career. I'm a chase reporter on an early morning radio show, and it's my job to collect the morning papers and deliver them to the AM crew in the newsroom. As I approach the stack, I'm struck by an unusual cover. The entire page is filled with photographs of women who have gone missing from Vancouver's downtown east side. It is the beginning of a public recognition that there could be a serial killer preying on vulnerable women. And here is why I'm thinking about that early time in my life as a journalist and why it matters to me more than ever right now. Serial killer Robert Picton was stalking women just blocks away from our newsroom in downtown Vancouver. In the end, he would admit to killing 49 women. In the aftermath, friends and family of the women would say they tried to raise alarm bells about what was happening. One sex trade worker and advocate dumped dozens of pairs of stiletto heels in front of City Hall. And so now, nearly 20 years later, when I see questions being raised about the number of men who are going missing here on Vancouver Island, I'm determined to ask the question, why are so many men disappearing from this beautiful place? This is Season 2 of Island Crime. I'm Laura Palmer, and you're listening to Gone Boys. Episode 1, The Boy Who Loved Christmas. British Columbia has a missing person problem. The West Coast has the distinction of having the highest number of adult missing person reports per capita in Canada. Thousands of people are reported missing every year. Most are found quickly. But men on the island are going missing and staying missing. The cases I'm focused on in this podcast share a few key similarities. 
the men were known to spend time alone on the highway. Some of them were last seen along the roadside. They have some degree of mental incapacity. I'm exploring whether there are any other connections tying these cases together. In the episodes ahead, you'll hear from leading criminologists, coroners, and police. Hearing that expertise elevates and informs this story, but nothing, nothing is better than talking to those closest to the missing men. That's where the most valuable information can be found. I see it as a kind of victim profiling. Listening to family members takes me past the missing poster and into the heart of this story. I begin close to home. Brandon Kearney disappeared from Port Alberni in 2017. The sign on the edge of the community describes Port Alberni as the ultimate salmon fishing town. But Port Alberni's economy has been most deeply tied to forestry. Douglas fir, hemlock, yellow cedar, and western red cedar. Gorgeous, deep forests fringe the valley where the town is nestled. At one point, forest workers here were the highest paid in the country. Those glory days are long gone. There is still a mill on the edge of town, but the community is struggling to re-identify itself as a tourist hub. Unfortunately, in recent years, Port Alberni is more likely to be known for the fact that two teen serial murderers called Port Alberni home before going on a murderous spree in 2019. Brandon Kearney is 31 years old when he vanishes from here in the fall of 2017. Linda is Brandon's mum. I meet with her down at Port Alberni's Harbour Quay. It's a place I know well. I come here for donuts, ice cream, and candy. I've spent many happy days strolling the waterfront, checking out boats down on the wharf, sitting in the park overlooking the spectacular Alberni Inlet. Today, the ocean is a choppy, sullen, blue-black. It's a dramatic, windy morning, the day I come face-to-face with Brandon's mother. I've only spoken with her on the phone so far, and I don't know what she looks like. When she pulls up, I smile and wave. Linda gets out of her car and begins walking purposefully towards me. Brandon's mom is a striking woman. She has shoulder-length, shiny silver hair. She's wearing a pretty scarf and matching cream sweater. She is also wearing a mask. It's the time of the pandemic. Linda gets into the back of my husband's SUV, where we maintain a distance across the vehicle. Uh, My name is Linda Cole, and I am Brandon's mother. She opens a bag full of mementos of Brandon, and the first thing she pulls out is a flip phone. I brought my old phone. And the reason I brought my old phone is because the last message that he sent me was on September the 12th of 2017. And I had asked him if he'd gotten home because he lived about 10 minutes away from me. So he appeared 
day or night, anytime, which he was able to do and I was happy with. Yes, I'm home now, Mom. Thanks again for the superb roast beef you had. Have a good night, Mom. Love you too. XOXO. So that was the last communication that I received via text from him. Next, Linda hands me a picture taken the year Brandon graduated from high school. It's a very different image than the one I've seen on the missing posters. He is a handsome young guy. Big smile, thick, dark hair, wearing a bright red basketball shirt. He was on the basketball team, the high school basketball team. He played basketball through junior high and senior high. He was a soccer player. He had numerous trophies for track and field. He was extremely athletic, six foot tall, size 13 feet. Linda reaches in and pulls out a canvas. Oh, he would make things out of nothing. He painted this the spring of the year he disappeared. It's a pretty little painting of a table overflowing with fruit and vegetables, with the ocean as a backdrop and the sun beaming down on an umbrella. Linda tells me she loves the sea, and Brandon pictured her under the umbrella. There is something sweet and childlike about this picture. I ask Linda to reflect on what Brandon was like as a little guy. Uh, He was almost 11 pounds when he was born. He's a large baby, healthy, just always on the go, Uh, loved to be with other people, always outside, always the one taking the dogs for a walk, always on his bicycle or with his basketball or with his soccer ball. He played soccer in a league. He played on the island team. Very athletic. Ran cross country. He was the one picked by the teacher to sit by the new student in class. Just quite gregarious. A real team player. I want Linda to give me a better sense of Brandon. She starts by describing his love of music. Quite often he'd be playing the stereo on quite loud and he'd have to knock on his door and say, turn it down, buddy. There's other people in the house. We were sort of an average family. Three boys went to church on Sunday. You know, pizza and movie night on Friday night, that sort of thing. Yes, he had some really good friends, really nice, nice young men. And there, I used to call it summer house because the back door would be open and the front door would be open. (laughs) There'd be kids flying through all the time. Yeah, that's when he was happiest. I meet with Brandon's dad in this same spot. My name is Brian Kearney. Uh, I'm the father of Brandon Kearney. Brian doesn't live in Port Alberni. It's just pure luck that my request reaches him when he's visiting the island. He has a kind of gruff edginess about him. He and Linda split up when Brandon was quite young. I grew up in Port Alberni, lived here most of my life. Left in the 80s, all in work. The 80s was a tough time, mid-80s was a tough time. Interest rates were 20%. I, I was in a family business and it just it killed it overnight. So uh, yeah, I spent the next 30 years, 40 years moving for work. But I, I'm retired now and I like 
I like to come back and spend time here. I like it. I visit. Not the place I used to remember, you know, back in the days when things were really good here. It's changed a lot, a lot, a lot. Could you just like go way back for me and talk to me about uh, early years with Brandon? What What's he like as a kid? What was he like as a kid? Uh, oh, he was just, it was uh, full of energy, gung-ho, you know, just uh, go, go, go. Wanted to do everything, you know. Did He loved the sports. Uh, was great in school. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was a good kid. Brian leaves Port Alberni to look for work. His marriage falls apart. He describes the next chapter of being a divorced dad to Brandon and his brother as brutal. Traveling, traveling, traveling to, to, to be with them, right? And then they would, they would travel. Because I, I was living in Vancouver, so. And they would come over and spend weekends with me. But in those days, there was no such thing as joint custody. It was not. It, the family law in this country is, as far as I'm concerned, is in the dinosaur age. So in those days, I was, you know, I had every other weekend, that was it. Brian describes a point in time where, as a teenager, Brandon begins to withdraw. He simply doesn't want to participate. He's bright, but increasingly disillusioned with life. Yeah, well, he was out partying with his buddies, right? And it seems to be a big drinking culture. I lost a lot of buddies in high school with that, right? Big, big parties, big drinking, crashing, dying. He was with one of his buddies, and he uh, he, he liked to he liked to binge, and he basically jumped in the guy's car and took off down the road. It's hard to imagine these two were married and had children together. They are such different people. Here's Linda's view on what happened that night and how it changed the Brandon she once knew. When he was 19, Labor Day weekend, he was in a car accident where he went through a sunroof and landed with his head first on a huge boulder. To make a long story short, he ended up in Victoria. We chased the ambulance because his brain was bleeding the whole time. And when the doctor showed me the x-ray, about a third of his head was black and it was the blood pushing his brain. So he said, within the hour, we are going to cut into his head, but say your goodbyes because there's a good chance he's not going to come out of it or he's hurry, or he's going to have lost some of his senses or faculties or he'd be in a wheelchair or whatever because they cut him from the base of his neck, the top of his head, down to the top of his ear, like the shape of a candy cane. I lost the Brandon that I knew at 18 and had to learn to accept a new Brandon. His emotions were magnified. His sense of smell was gone. His long-term memory was okay, but his short-term was shot. He couldn't remember things. And... He was trying so hard to be the same as before or to, he was in denial for a long time that he had actually 
was actually different and disabled, so to speak. He would never not be the same. But in the long run, the best medication that he found was his walking. He will walk for miles and miles and miles. If you've ever known someone who has had a serious brain injury, you will be able to relate to what Linda is describing. On the surface, it looks like her son survived the car accident intact. But Brandon is far from okay. I found it very difficult as a mom. He looked the same on the outside, but he was different inside. He still had a love of sports, but the team sport that he loved, he tried a couple of times, but he could get angry at certain things because he didn't know where to put them. As Linda mentioned, Brandon has emotional peaks, big highs and big lows. I asked her about him running into trouble with the law as a result of those lows. He said, Mom, if I ever see a woman or a child being harassed or hit or in trouble, he said, I would. And that's how he got into trouble. Gone Boys will be right back after a quick break. When Brandon first mm, goes missing, just tell me about the period before that. What What is he doing? He is walking a lot. He would walk to Nanaimo. He would walk to Qualicum. He'd do the mountains like the back of his hand. He would tell me about places on Aerosmith, places out Cameron Lake, at the back of the lake. Like he just knew that was what he did all the time, all the time. He lived about 15, 10 minute walk away from me, depending how badly he wanted that $10 for a pack of cigarettes because he'd run out of money. <laughs> um, and he would just appear at my door. So he's, he spent a lot of time at my place. In retrospect, the last two Christmases uh, prior to him disappearing, he spent at my place and, you know, he loved Christmas. The tree, the, in fact, the, the year that he disappeared, 2017 Christmas, I decked my place out to the max because I, for the longest time, it's probably been only in the last six months that I haven't been startled by any noise outside or a knock on the door. Maybe it's him. And I thought maybe at Christmas he would appear because he loved Christmas so much. He's the one that would sit in the easy chair and just stare at the tree and listen to music. He <sighs> was that. That's hard. Perspective really is everything. Here is how Brandon's father, Brian, saw his son in the years after the accident. He was compulsive, right? And he was angry. And he was just kind of out, out in left field, right? Still, there was quite a bit of Brandon left um, from, from what I saw before, but it was this, this compulsive behavior. And he would get on these, he would get these ideas in his head and he would just, yeah, run with them, go, go, go. His 
cognitive ability was messed up. Like he'd forget from one day to the next if he had an appointment or whatever. So he really couldn't, he could never hold down a job. You know, living in an apartment, then he'd be living on the street, then he'd be living in some other apartment. And so it was, it was crazy. And you mentioned he was like compulsive and at times angry. Yes. And I gather there are times where, you know, he gets into some trouble. Oh, he's always in trouble. Yeah. So always talk to me a little bit about that. He, He loved fighting. He loved fighting. And that was his thing. Right. So my understanding was because of where he was living and who was around, you know, these people that he was around in the life that he was living, that's how they live. They just, they're, they're violent people. Does he end up doing any jail time as a result of any of that? No. So it never escalated to the point. No, no. And he was an unassuming kid, right? He was real, just a real happy looking kid, right? Real, real, what's the word? An easy mark, maybe. I guess people looked at him and, you know, he looked like a young guy, right? They were going to pick on him, right? Talking to parents about a son who has vanished, who may well be dead, is tough stuff. But Brian recalls the circumstances of his son's disappearance in a matter-of-fact manner. So was it was you who reported him missing? Yes, yes. Okay. So tell me about that. What, what happens when you go in to talk to the police? Well, they knew they knew who he was, right? So it wasn't a, it wasn't okay. Well, you know, you give him a picture and da da da, da and, and that was it. That was that was it. After that, I think we we got an email um, that they had seen him on cold circuit TV somewhere in Vancouver, Vancouver East. Shortly after Brandon goes missing, his bank card is used twice in convenience stores over on the mainland. The family is divided on whether the grainy image they are shown is proof Brandon left the island alive. I'm not giving up, I'm, you know, never. No way, you know, no chance. So I'm choosing to believe that he's still out there somewhere. You know, there has been... a a suggestion by some that there could be something more sinister going on with men missing on mm-hmm. the island. What yep. are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's always a possibility, but we'll be the last ones to know about it. Linda is close to tears as she begins to describe what happened when Brandon disappeared. It's like one day here, one day not. So after a couple of days, three, a week maybe, I thought, gee, that's unusual, but he may have gone on a walkabout. I called it a walkabout when he would go because it was still, a, September can be really nice. And he was the epitome of Grizzly Adams. He could go into the bush and survive. He foraged all the time. He knew what to eat and what not to eat. He climbed mountains, literally. Um, but it was when he missed a couple of uh, appointments and he had made arrangements with Brian, his birth father. He didn't show and his place was empty. And that's when the missing persons 
report was filed. After the report is filed, Brandon's medical cards, bank cards, ministry files are all flagged, and everything stops. As for that one last possible sighting on CCTV, Linda just isn't sure what to make of it. The the man had his hand on the counter, and it did look like Brandon's hand. That's the only reason that I thought it might be him, because his hand looked familiar. But that's not very specific. If someone said to me, you know, that was not him, I wouldn't argue. It's hard as a mother to say, I think something has happened to him. So it's difficult because sometimes when I talk about Brandon, I say he was. And sometimes when I talk about him, I say he is. And sometimes I don't know what to say. I had a dream that he said goodbye to me. Dreams are interpretive. Dreams are simply dreams. But it was lovely. It wasn't a sad, sad dream the way it happened. I don't know. I still think he might appear at the door, though. I hear someone knock at the door, and I I have a little peek hole, and just for a fraction, fraction of a second or a minute or whatever, I'll just look. Before I look in that peek hole or before I open the door, I think. So I don't know how long that takes to go away. Of course, one of the things that is asked and um, people wonder when when people disappear is it is there is there any world where they they might have taken their own life was there we talked about that yeah. I do not believe Brandon was suicidal at all however Brandon was very there's nothing to say that he did climb to the top of a mountain and sat down and just was so exhausted or the odd time he would get headaches because of his, his injury or he could have fallen. But as a mother, I don't mean to sound morose or anything, but as a mother, if he was on top of a high mountain and he fell and hit his head or he, I can't, it's impossible for me to think of him suffering you know, at the hands of someone else in a situation that he couldn't or didn't want to be in. But if he was in nature, what he loved. But as far as suicide, I do not believe that. The idea that Brandon could have been targeted, murdered, is the worst case scenario. But when Linda believes is possible. A couple of times he showed up at my door, very late, very scared. Once he said he was running from someone in an alley. Once he appeared at our house, at the house, his home, prior to the, uh, and he had been, this is when he was working at the fish pond, and he had been held up at at knife point by two people that saw he had some money because he had, so he had been mugged. He had been, He had been harassed and he was, because he walked everywhere, people knew him just as a fellow that walked around. Um, But that's one of those thoughts that it's possible. I know that that is possible. 
The word target is horrible. And it's possible, but I just don't go there. Is there anything about Brandon that I haven't asked you or that you want to make sure when people look at his picture, when they hear his name, they just know about him? He gave the biggest, biggest bear hugs in the world. He told me once, he was a young, about nine or ten, and he said, so, Brandon, what's one of your favorite times of the day? And he said, Mom, when I'm walking home and I see your face in the kitchen window, that's one of my favorite times of the day. I just love that kid. Brandon's mother and father don't see eye to eye on Brandon's likely fate. And you can hear how, in their sadness and grief, they are still coming to terms with just how changed their son is after his brain injury. And that image of Brandon, caught on camera in a convenience store, opens up more questions than answers. If it is Brandon, why did he leave the island? What happened to him next? If it is not Brandon... Could this be an image of someone who had something to do with Brandon's disappearance? And that mention of Brandon being chased by someone with a knife sounds familiar to me. I realize I've heard a similar story before. Another young man who disappeared further up island reported being chased by someone with a knife before he went missing. Shannon Pollard never knew the social, cheery, athletic version of Brandon. But she did know, better than most, the Brandon who disappeared in the fall of 2017. I pull up in front of the bungalow on a busy street in Port Alberni, where Shannon lives. It's recycling day, and she's struggling with an overflowing box of cans as she makes her way to the sidewalk. Shannon is nervous and clearly anxious, tugging at layers of clothes as she tries to make herself comfortable in my back seat. She tells me this is her big outing for the day as we drive down towards the waterfront to find a quiet spot to talk. Shannon was Brandon's girlfriend. She is a middle-aged woman, older than Brandon. But if you ask me to describe Shannon, the first word that comes to mind is girlish. There is such a sweetness and vulnerability about her. When I when I start when I'm talking, I might start leaking emotion, so I'm not technically like crying. Yeah. So don't be worried if your questions are okay. worried or you don't have to stop or anything. It's just when I emote, As I listen to Shannon's thoughts and reflections on her time with Brandon, I also hear an intelligence and a high level of self-awareness. Well, my name is Shannon Pollard, and I'm a friend of Brandon's. I was his girlfriend also for um, quite a long time, and he is always special in my heart. Who is Brandon? He's a nice young man. He's, he's 
quiet, polite, not really shy, but keeps to himself. And he is generous, but then he's also a little bit standoffish and opinionated. And well, one thing I will say is that Brandon, whatever is in him brought out whatever was in me. And I really liked the person I was when I was with him. I didn't act a certain way or do anything because of Brandon or um, anything like that, but just whatever was in him was good for me. And I really liked that person I was when I was with him. And we exercised a lot because he walked everywhere. So tell me a, a little bit more about that, because that is something I've heard yes. from his family members as well, that he really just loved being outdoors and yes. loved walking. Yes. Part of that is, he told me, is from um, the accident, I guess. He's always had like a permanent headache, even when it's not, you know, normal for him. It might be a dull thud or a dull in the back. So he's always got something going on in his head. And when he'd walk, he'd walk and, like until he got to the bush. But on the smaller streets or the side streets, because just the repetitive sounds of cars, like on the things, those would um, were one thing that could make his headache worse or whatever, bright sun. So he'd wear sunglasses. But that's why he liked being out in the bush in nature, because there wasn't as many sounds. And also there wasn't people. He, was, he liked people. But he also sort of didn't like people. He could be known to like just suddenly erupt or fly off the handle. Part of it was his headache would get really, really bad. Or he was one of those people that, you know, a little bit of small anger upset on Tuesday and everything added to that. So by Thursday, he's exploding out of nowhere because all that built up thing. And you have no clue what it's about. Um, around people or... I'll say like urban things, he could be quite agitated. But when it came to like when he um he'd look over the water or out in the bush, he's he was just very still and calm. When you heard that Brandon was mm -hmm. missing, what did you think? In my head, what I choose to believe is that he's just walked somewhere because he walked around BC before like that and he literally he'd walk till he was tired and then he'd stop and okay and I don't think he went out to like no suicide things because that he that that just doesn't compute and entertain at all he was so tell, tell me about that because that is well, something people often wonder about yes. when someone leaves um I want to say too selfish but kind of like if you know it, he liked living like he liked even though I guess he wasn't like he used to be before. I guess he was more social before. He was okay with his solitude, like just walking in the bush or being in nature um, or being by himself. In your heart, when you think about Brandon now, what, where do you think he is? My number one thing that I choose to believe is he has found his place, which is somewhere close to or near habitation whether it's but I'm thinking maybe a smaller city or town or village and there's like a meadow or a lake or something and he's you know living Brandon is the first of the missing men I begin to learn about he grew up not far from where I live the roads and trails he hiked I know well 
Did Brandon walk into the woods and get lost in the island's dense, mountainous forest? Could he have taken his own life? Or is Brandon's disappearance part of a bigger story? Could there be a serial killer or killers here on Vancouver Island? I'm not a sensationalist. As a former public broadcaster, it's just not in my DNA. The past few decades, I've largely focused on issues like transit, elder care, and housing. Not exactly thriller terrain. But I have to be open to the possibility of a serial murderer in this exploration. There's the outsized case of Robert Picton to remind me that serial killers are real and we ignore them at our peril. The cautious, conservative approach to the missing women story back then didn't serve the public well. And so I'm raising the possibility of a serial killer now. I begin researching serial killer experts here in Canada. I set up a Zoom call after supper one evening with one of the country's leading authorities on serial killers. My name is uh, Dr. Michael Arnfield. I'm an associate professor at Western University in London, Ontario, where I am the founder and director of the university's Cold Case Society, which is an interdisciplinary um, unsolved murder think tank. I'm an associate editor with the Journal of Homicide Studies and a recognized homicide scholar, uh, again, with the view being that um, my research is focused primarily on, on cold cases involving serial offenders, and I've written 12 books on the subject. I briefly described the circumstances of the missing men here on Vancouver Island, and Professor Arnfield's response floors me. Number one, we know that, or there are patterns with respect to the targeting of persons at risk and at risk for any number of reasons, whether they be cognitive impairments, whether they be substance issues, whether they be uh, trafficked or abused individuals. So there's two factors here that are consistent with what we know to be common among serial offenders. And, and, and one is, again, an identifiable, marginalized or, or at risk group that is essentially a stock pond of available victims for a motivated offender. And number two is, is, is highway access. So in the U.S., for instance, the FBI has recognized that there is a specific type of interjurisdictional highway-based offender and has its own task force called the Highway Serial Killing Initiative that has about 450 unsub or unidentified offender profiles, some of which are supported by DNA evidence, many of which are just behavioral traits where they, they, they can link cases in different states. And these are believed to be people using the highway under the pretext of lawful employment. And what that allows them to do is offend while far away from their home base or wherever they're normally based and sort of exploit the fact that they're, they're sort of passing through. And of course, highways then have, have a number of infrastructural components, whether they be rest stops or whether they be not so much anymore, but in the past, it's sort of hitchhiking as a subculture that also lend them to being um, target-rich environments. Some of the family members I've spoken to have 
raise the highway of tears and are asking themselves if the highway, the main highway here on Vancouver Island, could also be having a similar kind of thing happening here, albeit with a very different profile of a victim. I mean, it's it sounds like um, you're onto something there, I and mean, this this may be a lesser known uh, lesser known case. I mean, the the Highway of Tears because of the how protracted that series of murders is. I mean, it goes back years and years, and there's been a lot of controversy attached to an apparent reluctance to identify many of those victims as part of a pattern, or at least if it's not the same offender, there being a systemic issue there. So there are highways of tears, plural, in every province. They just they just don't garner the same media interest. Or And, and it sounds like you may have one here in that your victim profile, so with respect to victimology or what victims is, is pretty compelling on the surface to suggest that you have your own problem right there on the island. Again, when you talk about similarities, in each case of the families I've spoken with, they've talked about how, you know, these men, because of the nature of their disabilities, didn't kind of fit in their communities. And that to a certain extent, they wonder if they haven't had much attention paid to them and that people aren't making any kind of connections is just because they didn't fit in the communities and therefore no one's really caring that they're gone. Officials may tend to be uh, less inclined to consider the existence of a pattern because there are certain pre-existing stereotypes assigned to the victims. I feel like Canadians are maybe less likely to think that a serial killer could be what's happening do you think like culturally, do you think Canadians are just what, or more trusting or what? what I don't know. Yeah, I mean, serial homicide, because the term was popularized in the United States, American media has turned it into a, its own culture industry. Uh, so it's largely inaccurately deemed to be an American problem. And certainly they have the most uh, identified, but per capita, Canada has not only a noteworthy number, but uh, it's very noteworthy cases, even by gruesome U.S. standards. So, I mean, uh, London, Ontario, which is where Western is based, as I discussed in my book, Murder City, had, the, had the, the highest concentration per capita of serial killers in the world for about a 30-year period. It's, it's not a U.S. problem. Canada, they are there. And we know that they are because, I mean, some police departments in this country have a solved rate or clearance rate as bad or worse then, I mean, some, some of these really backward, you know, county sheriff's departments in the, in the southern U.S. So uh, that you know, lots of cops like to mock. One of the men, um, Brandon Kearney is his name, uh, who disappeared a few years ago from Port Alberni. A question I had, and I don't know yet if the police are looking at this, is whether there might be any linkage with um, the two Port Alberni men who were responsible for triple murders last summer. Would it be reasonable to consider the possibility that they may have killed before? Yes. And in fact, as that story was unfolding, I was getting 
a dozen calls a day from media on that story as it was as it was active. And a lot of reporters early on had identified a potential link. And it's something that, at least publicly, the RCMP have not apparently taken seriously. But if you look at teen killers, so two or more offenders, and their, their motivations and how they sort of begin and crystallize that that bond over murder, they often act opportunistically. And they did in, in that late in their final crime spree. I, I think I mentioned this at the time. To attack a couple is very ambitious, even for an experienced uh, set of team killers. It suggested to me that they had certain they had done something before, or there was uh, this wasn't just a road trip that went bad, and they, they started randomly doing this. This was a murderous odyssey that it struck me had been being prepped for some time, and that there will likely be other victims of some kind. So I think they need to be looked at. Certainly, their connection to that area, their connection possibly to these to one or more of these these same men. Professor Arnfield talks, Brandon is in my mind. Linda and Brian's beautiful boy. The boy with the candy cane scar who loved Christmas. Brandon, who walked alone for miles and miles. Could he have been a victim of a serial killer? Coming up in episode two. I traveled to the heart of the island's missing men's story, a community where three men are simply gone and family members believe a predator could be stalking men along the highway. Scary around here. Been a lot of depth around here and people finding people down the river and isn't just wondering if somebody's killing us. People what I think. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 2, Gone Boys. If you have information about Brandon Kearney's disappearance, if you know whether he ever made it off the island, please get in touch with me. And also, if you have information about any of Vancouver Island's missing men, I'm reachable at laura at laurapalmer.ca. And one last request. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Those reviews help build a community of people who may be able to push the needle forward on cases like Brandon's.